Hello and welcome to the latest episode of 100 Campaigns That Changed the World. I'm recording this in September 2019 and apologies for the lack of recent episodes but I've been concentrating on my day job. This podcast uh, you're about to hear is a kind of two for the price of one episode and it's um, <clears throat> ostensibly about the campaign against the slave trade in the 18th and 19th century in the, in the British Empire. So I've been thinking for a while about doing something uh, from deep in the past rather than, uh, I suppose, the recent past, as as many of the previous podcasts have been, um, about the campaign to abolish the slave trade, which was, I suppose, an obvious choice for that. In fact, you know, as we'll hear, it's arguably the first campaign of its kind, um, and I suppose a form of campaigning which is quite closely related to uh, modern um, campaigns. So the first half is with Richard Benjamin. Richard has headed up the International Slavery Museum in Liverpool since 2006 and has got a background in community and race relations and uh, African and African-American research. I think he's a good starting point for thinking about the campaign against slavery uh, and the slave trade, which focused, as we'll hear, quite a lot on Liverpool um, uh, but it also gives a flavour of the wider context of the campaign and the slave trade in, in general. And following that, after the uh, break in the second half, there's an interview with Dr Richard Huzzy, who's Associate Professor in the Department of History at Durham University, and has focused his academic studies on the British campaign to abolish the slave trade and slavery. He's, he's one of the go-to experts uh, on the issue in the UK. He's also, interestingly, co-authored a book entitled Campaigning for Change, uh, Lessons from History, which, in which he has written extensively about both the campaign but also the lessons that it and other campaigns provide for modern-day campaigners looking back uh, in history as, as he does. Unfortunately, the sound in the second half um, with Richard Huzzy is not that great. I'm not sure why, but it's, I mean, it's perfectly listenable, but it's... It's not not perfect, I'm afraid. So apologies for that. And here's the podcast. Hello, well, I'm, I'm here with Richard Benjamin from the International Slavery Museum, and I'm in Liverpool with, with Richard, and we, we're here to talk about um, both the campaign um, for the abolition of the slave trade, but also more generally about slavery. Um, so, uh, Richard, um, could you say just uh, a little bit about how the museum was set up? Yes, absolutely. So the International Slavery Museum uh, opened on the 23rd of August 2007, so we're 12 years old now, uh, and we've had upwards of 4 million visitors, so it's very successful in uh, in those terms. But there's a history uh, to it, and we're based, technically, we're on the third floor of a larger museum called the Merseyside Maritime Museum. And we're part of a big family of museums called National Museums Liverpool. And we have eight national museums around the city, uh, largest outside of London. So it's a big organisation. And why that's important where we're located is because in 1994, within the building of the Maritime Museum, 
though in the basement of that building, there was what was called the Transatlantic Slavery Gallery. Now, that's relevant because that was the first permanent gallery on the subject of transatlantic slavery, anywhere in Europe, possibly anywhere in the world. Uh, and it was very successful. It had millions of visitors. Uh, but how did we come about? Well, it was open till 2006, and there was a decision by the organisation, 2002-2003, uh, uh, that rather than just being a gallery that was part of the Maritime Museum, good as it was, the subject matter, yeah. slavery, you know, we're in Liverpool, capital of the transatlantic slave trade, the epicentre of that trade for nigh on 75 years, mid-18th century to, to its abolition. Uh, so it was important that the subject matter had a greater status in that sense. So that's why uh, we went for accreditation to open up as a museum, a national museum, the same footing as the British Museum or the National Portrait Gallery. We may not be as big physically, but we have that status and we're funded by the Department for Culture, Media and Sport. Right. So that was kind of like our our embryonic development. And uh, we're here now when we're a very successful museum in our own right. And I've just walked around the museum a bit this morning, and it was, you know, obviously it was very interesting and poignant. Um, but and as you said, the, the, there's a strong sort of history with Liverpool and, and slavery, the centre of the slave trade for some time. Can you talk a bit about what the city was like in, say, the 1700s um, and how slavery was viewed by the local people? Uh, it's an interesting question. First thing to say to people listening to this, we're, we're having this discussion looking out onto Liverpool's historic waterfront and there's a lot of school children just walking by where we are now and they're looking at the remnants of the dry dock system in Liverpool. So take yourself back to the mid-18th century and this area would have been full with a very lively area with ships of various sorts. From this port, over 4,000 slave ships were funded, kitted out, had supplies placed on them in this locality, and then went on their journeys to West Africa and Central Africa and transported upwards of a million enslaved Africans to various places in the Americas. So that's why Liverpool wasn't the only port involved in the transatlantic slave trade. Bristol, London were beforehand. But it took it to a new level. Uh, from the 1740s, 1750s, uh, all the way to 1807, the abolition of the slave trade. Uh, so that's how important Liverpool is. Much of its built environment was with the profits of the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, goes without saying that many of the mayors and the merchants in the city, not everyone, but the vast majority, were involved in some shape or, or form. Uh, I was at an event yesterday at the town hall and there was a list of the lord mayors and of the city over hundreds of years and many many of them were were from families who were involved in the transatlantic slave trade so it very much seeps through the veins yes of the city but it wasn't just the merchants that that made profits from this this it's very hard to to think of it now because the the scenery has changed very much but a lot of people small businesses medium-sized businesses made uh, their profits as well through their involvement within that kind of system of the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, and I was also reading uh, this morning that um, even some charities, I don't know whether there were any, any Liverpool-based charities, but I saw some charities were beneficiaries of the slave trade that got, got donations. and. Well, the more 
research that is carried out within this field because it is an ever ever changing area of research. It's definitely not static. Uh, the more you scratch beneath the surface, the more you find. As an example, I was at an event a few weeks ago, and there was an academic from from Glasgow. Glasgow is a city is kind of I suppose trying to get where Liverpool is in, in in the way that it's looking at its past. And uh, long story short, he'd done some research, a money trail, really, from founders of the university in Glasgow to actual bursaries that were still being used today, unknowingly, of course, by many people there. Uh, And he said, you know, this is slavery that has a budget code. And that really stuck with me. It's like, we all kind of talk in those terms, don't we? We all have budgets. And to think there is a trail of money that was a from a benefactor who had engaged in the transatlantic slave trade. And he was still funding staff today in that university. Mm. So the university mm. was engaging with its past in, yeah. in that way. So you find that, yes, you scratch beneath the surface. It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and the, 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 talking about the, the abolitionist movement, which, as I understand it, came, sort of rose up in the late 1700s. Um, I mean, that, that there were some abolitionists in the city, I think people like yeah. William Roscoe and Thomas Clarkson, but yeah, yeah. Um, but it also seems that Liverpool was a spearhead in terms of the resistance to the abolition of the. Of, well, you know, yes, that Liverpool was, you know, resist, you know, the centre of the resistance in a way. Is that is that true? Well, yes, you know, it was it was the the epicentre for these discussions. Uh, and there was pioneers in many senses. You mentioned Roscoe as a good example. Who was a a well-known you know, son of the city and was celebrated. It kind of been easy being someone who was uh, an abolitionist in Liverpool in the mid and early parts of the 18th century. You mentioned Clarkson as well, who I believe was chased out of the city at one stage from when he was on one of his uh, campaigns. You know, Liverpool, if you look around the streets today and you look at the street names of individuals, most people don't know who the streets are named after, but there's one called Tarleton Street, a small street in the city centre named after members of the Tarleton family. Bannistray Tarleton was, was one of the many members of the family who profited from the, trans- uh, you know, the involvement of the family. And he was an MP as well. Uh, fought in the American War of Independence, didn't have a particularly good uh, kind of... Uh, he's not thought of very well over in the States if when we have American visitors and they see uh, that he was from uh, Liverpool. And people like that were vociferous in their kind of campaign against the abolition mm. of the slave. You know, important people with, with good standing in the city. And the Gladstone family as well. Doesn't mean everybody in the Gladstone family was involved. But, you know, John Gladstone, uh, William Gladstone's father, you know, four times Prime Minister, these were people who were making vast amounts of money. Mm. So when there was that movement in Parliament, you know, people like Wilberforce who were starting to push things things through, yeah, of course, there was resistance from them uh, and it wasn't just about the funding I think a lot of people thought they were bringing some kind of good to the enslaved Africans which is a whole new area of looking at it yeah and the, the, I was reading as well about is it Equiano the, yeah louder Equiano yeah. so you know I, perhaps that's a story that some his role as a sort of a, a black or yeah black abolitionist yeah as an abolitionist so well I think this is the it's the understanding of what who who the abolitionists were. I mean, you can understand, rightly so, that people like William Wilberforce, uh, you know, who led through many many years through Parliament a campaign uh, to get it legally, you know, to to challenge that legal recognition of 
of slavery. So it's not to take away anything from somebody like William Wilberforce. But there's always those people that, that are unheard or not acknowledged enough. So there was an organisation called the Sons of Africa, which was a number of uh, freed enslaved Africans uh, who lived in the UK. Uh, and one of those members was Alaudo Equiano. We talk about him in the museum a lot. And these were people that were mixing in high society, had uh, good status, knew a lot of people, knew royalty. Uh, and in many senses, maybe they, because they were slightly seen as being different and sadly by some people as being exotic, the fact is they were, you know, they met many kind of people in the higher echelons of society. And they had a big part to play, you know. Elado Aquiano wrote the interesting narratives about his life, and that was a book still in print today, that was used as part of the abolition campaign. So, yes, you shouldn't forget people like Equiano. It's an important thing to point, point to mention. And, and you also highlight in the, in the museum um, the uprisings around... I, I don't think I was aware of the extent yeah. of those uprisings over a period of decades. From the Hundreds of years. I, yeah. mean, that, no, yeah. I mean, absolute. And that's the museum. That's what a museum's supposed to do. You know, you're telling stories... And, you know, the vast majority of people that come to the museum, you know, know very little about the subject, know very little about Africa or Africans. I mean, we try to put things in perspective. We don't just jump into a discussion about this is what Europeans did to Africa. You know, we put some context in to the civilizations and continent and empires and different types of people that that, that were involved in, in that. Uh, it wasn't a simple dynamic of, you know, here arrived the, the Europeans. So that's a museum's role. So one of the things we always do is a, a, we call it agency. You know, we try to give people a voice that are often forgotten. Mm. So we call it African agency, and it's, in, it's an important point. So resistance and rebellion, for us, I mean, we have a, a whole 400-year timeline that talks about various revolts and resistance and uprisings. Mm. Because there was no, it wasn't passive. There was always resistance, mm-hmm. some successful, some not. But that's a point we always try to put across. It wasn't just the white abolitionist saviours, yeah, up important as they were, people brought about their own uh, abolition in yeah. the end. And were the two linked at all? Were there any links between the, as you say, the, the white saviors and the, and the African, either you know, emancipated slaves or escaped slaves? Or yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, again, you you know, you had people, you know, like Roscoe, you had people like Clarkson, and obviously, what they did, they often used the stories and the lives of individuals that had escaped or were freed. You have to remember, you're going, this, is the early, this is the beginnings of human rights campaigns. It's yeah. like what happens today. You know, people campaign, you, you tell stories, don't you? Mm. You humanise a subject matter. Yeah. That's the strongest way of, of getting something across. There's the technical aspect, you know, of course. Yeah. But So people like uh, Clarkson in particular... They realised the power of telling people's stories, and they basically went round the country, uh, and not just Claxon. There were many others, but Claxon's the most well known. And uh, they told people stories. They t- told them what life was like on a slave mm. ship. They talked about the numbers, the hundreds of people packed in yeah. to a slave ship. And he used a, an image of called the Brooks, which was a Liverpool slave trader ship. Some people may have have seen it, and that was a kind of campaign material. You know, he took. Mm. This, you know, showed the size of the ship and how many people were crammed into it, and that kind of started to hit home. And do you, yeah, so that's interesting. Uh, so, were people not perhaps aware of the extent of the 
horrendous conditions on slave ships, or they just didn't perhaps think about it. Yeah. And was that was the sort of highlighting of those kinds of issues? You know, that was presumably a powerful tool in Absolutely. as weapon. Yeah. Well, I, well, look. Here's the the modern day analogy. You know, I've just talked about the museum. You know, this is, you know, 2019, and people are still coming to the museum with little or no understanding of issues, historical forms of slavery and enslavement, and also contemporary forms of slavery. And it's a much more informed, <coughs> excuse me, a much more informed general public than it was then. So you have to take yourself back, you know, 100, 150 years, and the scholars will write more about this than me. And look who had access to publications. You know, how many people were literate? It's a completely different. There wasn't TV. You didn't have the radio. You didn't have the internet. So it was hard for people to find information out. So it was a very kind of the top levels of society that basically control that information. So people like Clarks and the majority of people that have been talking to were, you know, well-educated people of a certain class. But as time went on, then more members of the, you know, inverted commas, general public would have engaged with that campaign. But it was very much a kind of, you know, you were from a certain part of society to even know what was going on. Yeah. The the other story that you tell or what comes across in, in the museum is the is the link or the continuum if you like between the anti-slavery movement, the civil rights movement, yeah. um and uh, you know and then even sort of modern day uh, what anti-slavery movements and also uh, anti-racist uh, or racism yes, movements. Yes. Absolutely. Can can you, so is that is that a, is it right to say that there's a continuum, or was there one thing which you can identify as the anti-slavery movement, and then yeah. several decades passed, and then something else emerges, which is more about civil rights? How how do you see it? <laughs> it's a yes and no uh, to that. Yeah. Uh, you know, we take on a lot in the museum. We tell a very big story, and we talk about contemporary forms of slavery. And you're right, civil rights movement as well. Uh, so we see the lack of someone's freedom as being a theme that runs throughout this. Somebody being enslaved physically, mentally, uh, uh, their freedom taken away by somebody. So you can look at uh, thematically at this, what we do. That would cover a lot of those subject matters. But no, they are, they are different. And, you know, there is a lot of research being carried out today. And you have to remember, for us, it's a balancing act. So we have members of the public those public that know very little about some of these subjects, and then you have your academics. And that's a different world, okay? The museum's not writing a book. That's not what we do. We have to engage with the public in a way that's meaningful, but we have to give them a way in. And there's many different ways you do that. So slavery today, or a contemporary form of slavery, they are different to chattel slavery. Chattel slavery was when somebody was legally defined it's more complicated than this but legally defined as property okay Mm. now there are very few if any governments today that legally support a form of enslavement that's not to say it doesn't happen surreptitiously in different countries in different industries i'm not saying that but no it is different Mm. and i think it is important for people when you when you talk about the term abolition we as a museum do not say the abolitionists of the past are the same as abolitionists today. We don't we don't say that because they are different. You know, people like Clarkson, Wilberforce, they were looking at challenging, you know, a legal system 
that allowed the enslavement of Africans over hundreds of years, not just in England, you know, Portugal, Spain, France, etc. So even though people are fighting for people's freedom, it is different. You know, transatlantic slavery and its legacies, which is what we say we do, continues. So racism and discrimination, uh, oppression of people who may be from Africa or different parts of the diaspora. So there's themes that continue, and we do believe that issues around uh, racial, you know, views on racial superiority and, and things like that. You know, we think that are linked to that, so that's a continuum. But the other forms of contemporary forms of slavery and slavery today, it's a bit more complicated than that. Than that. So when people talk about modern slavery, it kind of suggests that something's ended, doesn't it? So we're careful as the museum, because mm. they are different. Uh, both important for us to talk about. Uh, and like I said, we're not writing a book, so the, you know you don't want to get involved in all these big academic debates, but there is a lot of work being carried out now that shows it's not as simplistic as it may seem on the surface. Yes, and can you say a bit about you, the links that you have with the civil society organisations? I mean, see, so you, you, you profile anti-slavery international in the, in the museum... Yeah. Um, well, again, it's, you know, we made a decision when we opened in 2007 that we wanted to uh, engage new audiences in not only the subject of chattel slavery and transatlantic slavery, but in other forms of slavery and enslavement as well, which is enormous and it's vast. Uh, and we made that decision that we would work with NGOs, uh, law enforcement, government, to look at Issues different, as we've just talked about in many degrees, but that would engage the public to make them realise that you know, people lack freedom today. And why? And we thought if you engage with a new audience in that subject, then you get them to the museum and they'll be able to engage with the, the broader work that you do. That's a 10-year relationship. You know, before our discussion now, I've just come from a, a three-hour meeting with members of an organisation that's looking at the uh, supply chains in the northwest of England. Right. Now, why is that in the museum? Because we've given the organisations a platform without public awareness of what the work of NGOs or the work of the police. Then you're not going back. That's one connection, isn't it? You know, the public have to be aware of what is happening. So the museum is a marvelous platform for organisations that you mention because we are talking to thousands of people a day, hundreds of thousands of people. A year, and they don't always have access to the amount of people we do. So it's a it's a good relationship, and we're looking to kind of progress our work within that field and and, and do some more uh, important and exciting things in the future. Well, Richard, thank you so much for your your time to, your thoughts there. I think that was that was really really interesting. Thanks. Thank you very much. Welcome to 100 Campaigns That Change the World. I'm here with Richard Huzzy in London, and we're talking about uh, the campaign to end slave trade. Uh, so, Richard, um, 
just to kick off with, uh, could you say a little bit about sort of what it was that started the campaign and you know why it was that some people started to oppose the slave trade? That's a great question. It's one that historians, I suppose, are still trying to work out actually the answer to. Um, you have lots of examples, I suppose, throughout the 18th century of literature, of personal reflections where people express distaste, unease um, with slavery as a condition. Um, but what you don't have until the 1780s is any group um, concertedly trying to make a political change that would abolish uh, the legal status of the slave trade. So you get people who individually say, I'm going to withdraw from um, uh, trading in goods made by slaves and so on, but you don't get that kind of political movement till then. So I suppose the answers have ranged from part of a kind of re-examination and desire to remoralize the British Empire after the loss of the American colonies in the American Revolution if you, in the 1770s, 1780s, um, through to an idea that this is perhaps a kind of example of a flourishing of um, a new form of uh, more popular politics, where there are a wider range of actors in towns, cities, counties that are expressing their views, including their moral opinions, on uh, the laws of the country. And if you sort of can imagine what the campaign well, we're calling it the campaign, but the, the movement to abolish the slave trade looked like at the beginning. Did it? Was it something? That we, could you discern a strategy in there, or was did it sort of? Was it more organic? Than that? It's it's quite funny because just after they win their first victory in abolishing the slave trade in 1807, um, one of the leading activists, Thomas Clarkson, actually writes a history of the movement and how it came together. Now, of course, that's very much based around him, but. It also includes this fascinating uh, river diagram of how there are different strands of thought. And he takes it back to much older philosophical religious traditions, but also lots of different individual actors that are doing different projects. So you can you can pull it back to different points in time. But I suppose that crystallizing moment in the 1780s um, is a confluence of certain individuals at least being put in touch with each other. Um, and eventually forming a committee. So there's a there's a core to it. It's Quaker organised uh, committees as part of the Society of Friends. Um, there's a subcommittee there which um, tries to agitate on the question. But then they have these important allies like Thomas Clarkson, as I say, who as a young student was assigned an essay or rather decided to write an essay for a prize competition at university on the licitness of the slave trade and doing the research to write this essay to win a prize um, famously says that this kind of awakened in him a sense that this was his purpose in life was to actually stop it. So what had been a quest for personal glory turned into um, a sort of personal mission. Um, so in terms of a strategy, you can see them doing things like trying to write letters into newspapers, um, often disguising who they were from to try and suggest that there was growing public sentiment around. And crucially, I suppose, very early on, from 1787, when the Society for Affecting the Abolition of the Slave Trade is first formed, they happen upon petitioning as a key way of demonstrating um, provincial, countrywide opposition to the slave trade. And that petitioning, could you say a bit more about that? You know, so how did that work? And um, was it was it the sort of main tool in the toolbox? I think it 
Yeah, I think it's fair to say it was. Um, what's interesting is that petitioning was a principal way of lobbying the government in this period. There are lots of powerful business interests, including the slave owners of the West Indies and the slave traders um, in the British Empire, that have relatives that are themselves perhaps members of parliament, but they also have really powerful lobby groups. Um, and one of the main ways they represented their views and sort of asked for a hearing about any new regulation or law was through petitioning. And what's kind of interesting is I think you see the abolitionists taking that tactic and in the footsteps of a few earlier um, political reform campaigns earlier in the 18th century, the abolitionists are the ones who really master the art of turning the lobbyist's weapon into a uh, kind of anti-lobbyist campaigning weapon. And what's quite funny is that the um, the West Indian interest, the, the slave owners, um, supporters in Parliament actually say, who are all these people petitioning us to get rid of the slave trade? These are people who don't have a business interest in the slave trade, so they don't have any standing to tell Parliament how it should be regulated. Um, and of course, that is in a sense the heart of the abolitionist argument, saying that you've all been corrupted by the money and avarice which has blinded your eyes to this evil. So, so this was sort of the first time that um, people, albeit people of a certain social standing, um, started this, a major campaign or this petitioning that didn't that that, that, that was based on a sort of moral basis or, or an ethical basis and not a, a business interest that they had. Inevitably, as a historian, I get nervous around it, saying it's definitely the first. But I think there's a decent claim, at least, that this is a sort of mutation out of previous um, efforts that had been perhaps um, based around demands of political reform on a quite smaller scale. But there's something about the scale of the number of places they get to send in petitions. And I suppose, in a sense, while there's definitely a kind of very elite, socially elite leadership in the committee... They only are able to produce this national outpouring because they find allies and collaborators in every town and city and county across Great Britain and Ireland that take up the idea of also signing and organising petitions locally. And then to greater or lesser extents in different places, they do open them up to a wider variety of people signing it. So in a sense, I would say that this is actually as much a story about popularisation of politics in Great Britain, um, a a tiny stepping stone on what would become a a pathway to democracy, um, as it is also about, yeah, the the kind of origins of what people have said is um, a template of the first modern social movement or the first campaigning movement within a um, uh, representative uh, political system. Not that it was very representative at this point, but it was at least stumbling towards that model. And... uh... The, the, the span of the campaign or the span of the time in which, you know, if you take the start of the campaign to when uh, the slave trade was abolished and then finally when slavery itself was, was abolished, that's quite a long period of time. Is there a lesson there for modern campaigners about how long you've got to keep going to get what you want? It's, uh, it's funny, whenever I talk to modern campaigners, they always look horrified when I tell them that actually... For me, this is actually a story of how quickly they succeeded. That in 1783, when the society, when when the first petition goes to Parliament, or 1787, when the society is founded, to 1833, when slavery is abolished in the British Empire, or 1838, when the apprenticeship in the British Empire ends. 
um, 50 years is actually seems to me pretty quick from a standing start in terms of um, there being an idea of a political movement that would ban slavery under British law. Um, so to me, it seems pretty quick. I suppose the key thing that campaigners might want to bear in mind is just how many fallow periods and setbacks there were during that. So if you want a really kind of quick and dirty sort of summary of the chronology, you could say 1787 to 92, they they, they start and they get an immediately really strong popular response. Immediately, actually, they're able to pass in Parliament a regulatory act, which tries to stop slave traders from over loading slave trading vessels, which is a sort of attempt, I suppose, to try and prove that they can clean up their act themselves, which is why that goes through quite easily. And then it gets bogged down in an inquiry, and then you get the French Revolution tamping down the um, tolerance of the authorities for apparently reformist radical organisations, and actually some of the abolitionist leaders are some of the people most keen to... um, make sure a French revolution doesn't spread to Britain. So you're going to get a really fallow period until in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars, the moment is opportune to try and push the government to slave trade abolition, 1806 to seven. Mm -hmm. And then a period from the 1820s onwards, when there are campaigners first asking for the gradual and then for the immediate emancipation of enslaved people. So it's important, I suppose, to remember that early on, abolitionist campaigners explicitly said, we're not trying to free slaves, we're just trying to end the slave trade, which is where the greatest abuses and horrors and crimes happen. And then only in the 1820s do they gradually get brought, often actually due to the provincial radic- uh, the radicalism of provincial supporters. Yeah. People like Elizabeth Hayrick, who's a radical um, abolitionist supporter in Leicester, who's the person who writes a pamphlet saying, our parliamentary leaders are too timid in asking merely for gradual amelioration and regulation of slavery, they need to push for the immediate end of it. And gradually the official position of the society of William Wilberforce and MPs like that gets pulled to be in favour of it. And then they do win in 1833. Well, at this time, some of the original campaigners were presumably either dead or very, very old. Yeah, Wilberforce actually dies around the time that the abolition, uh, the Emancipation Act passes in Parliament, which in a sense is probably why, in popular memory, Wilberforce takes this huge role. I mean, he was kind of, in a sense, one of the grandest and, and most famous um, patrons of abolitionism at the time. But I think his kind of status as this kind of sole, uh, you know, great white uh, evangelical saviour of, of ending the slave trade is, is ensconced by the fact he manages to die just at the moment of the victory. So that means, of course, the anniversaries are always then anniversaries of both his death, his martyrdom, and also the winning of the campaign. So I suppose historians recently would have been would be emphasising the importance of um, the local popular mobilisation within Britain, um, as well as something I suspect we're going to come on to in a sec, mm. which is the sort of dynamics with slave resistance and insurrection in the West Indies themselves. Just to go back to the, uh, the dynamic between the public and Parliament and, and how the, the campaign or the movement sort of harnessed one or the other, could you discern a sort of, yeah, I, I suppose a changing in tactics, you know, starting in Parliament and then moving to the public and I, I suppose more of an outsider strategy, as you said, it was more radicalised in terms of what they were asking for, but did, did the tactics change in terms of, you know, 
trying to kind of use the public uh, as a lever to, to, to get Parliament to move more quickly? I suppose from an early stage, um, they were using through things like petitioning and through fundraising to pay for expenses of things like bringing their witnesses to select committees. They were always speaking to a public audience as well as trying to lobby MPs. That appealing to the public was part of that strategy of appealing to parliamentarians. Um, I suppose one interesting thing you can see changing, which kind of reflects the way that you know, British politics is like nothing we would recognise in this period. Lots of elections aren't contested. There aren't really political parties in the modern sense. Um, I suppose something you can see that changes, though, is that in the 1780s, there's a greater emphasis on getting a large number of petitions from places, demonstrating that lots of places, including important towns, commercially, industrially important towns, are against the slave trade. By the 1820s and 30s, there's more petitions that come from a specific church congregation or a specific um, group of people within a community. And that perhaps is reflecting a great emphasis on numbers as well as um, demonstrating the breadth of support, not just the number of places, but I suppose that's a, a sliding um, scale. And was that replicated in how the campaign was funded as well? Was there, was there more of a, a mass funding that came through later on or was it, how, how was it funded? It's funded through subscription, which in a kind of 18th century sense, a charity subscription would be quite a familiar thing that you'd either subscribe for the relief of people affected by a natural disaster somewhere. There were some great generous subscriptions to help the slave owners after they were hit by hurricanes in the 1780s. Yeah. So, so there's, there's this kind of charity appeal is, is a kind of common mechanism, or it's also the way that you would raise money to pay for a book. So somebody like Olud Equiano, the um, former slave who writes his own narrative, that's a great example of that. It says it's the crowdfunding of its day mm. because you basically get lots of people to chip in pledge in advance that they'll pay for copies of a book. Or in this case, for the society, that they'll chip in money that will pay for publications, pay for the travel expenses of the former slave trade sailor that you want to bring to a parliamentary inquiry to testify about how horrible the conditions really are beneath deck or something like that. Um, I think at the end of the day, a lot of their finances probably based on a kind of... Uh, evangelical or Quaker sort of great and the good, but there are lots of sort of heart-rending stories of poorer people wanting to give a penny or what they could afford to um, to contribute. So the idea of um, yeah, charity being, being attached to a political campaign is not a new one. It's something that, you know, I think in the 1970s was being fought out in the UK, you know, whether the Charity Commission would allow campaigning groups and one-on-one who I used to work for were sort of at the forefront of trying to get that, push the boundary on that. But it sounds like that was quite, that was the case in this case. Yeah, I mean, I suppose one way to flip it round is instead of thinking of this as the first modern campaign, to think of it as a mutation from an earlier model of um, clubs, societies and, and sort of local charity groups. So um, one historian who's looked at this kind of birth of urban uh, associational culture in terms of clubs and societies that support particular causes identifies abolitionism as being an interesting um, mutation of that older model in that it's asking the government to ban something. Mm -hmm. So the earlier ones would have been raising money to relieve a particular problem or perhaps to encourage local judges to 
enforce existing laws or, or otherwise do some sort of good works in their area. Um, I suppose abolitionism is new in that it's about lobbying the government to do something that is, in a sense, a um, uh, mor moral judgment as much as it is a um, business issue. You can kind of slide that and say, well, that's there in lots of other stuff, lots of religious campaigning over blasphemy or things in previous centuries. But there's something I think new happening here in terms of asking the government to step in and regulate something that you think is um, beyond the limits of acceptable sort of business. You mentioned earlier that um, the the campaign wasn't something that was happening in isolation, that there were things going on elsewhere in the world. Uh, for instance, slave insurrections in, in, in the West Indies, but also uh, could you talk a bit about the agency of slaves within this campaign? Because there, that's something that isn't really brought out that much in, in the sort of typical story about uh, abolitionism, but something I picked up from my visit to the Slavery Museum in Liverpool. Could you say a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, in a sense, the abolitionists wrote their own history of their own crusading success in um, ending slavery. So in a sense, it was always one that was going to be conditioned by their views, which on the one hand, they never would have, very few British abolitionists would have had anything remotely like uh, anything we could have recognised in terms of an aim of racial equality. Their aim was to create a free black peasantry. And that then that kind of sense of superiority, racial, civilizational superiority, even amongst abolitionists, is reflected in even their relationship to, I suppose, slave resistance, which is to say that somebody like Equiano, an escaped slave who writes his memoirs, ends up getting quite poorly treated. Someone like James Williams, um, a uh, abused apprentice from Jamaica who's brought over to testify about how the apprenticeship system of the 1830s is just as bad as slavery had been. It's sort of treated as a prop, and when he starts to actually expand on his own political views, is told sort of, shut up, know your place. And that kind of, I suppose, reflects a general attitude towards um, slave resistance, which had been to um, perhaps see it as a, a problem in that slave owners had um, said that this was proof of the barbarity of enslaved people and why they shouldn't be freed and abolitionists had to sort of embark on a rhetorical strategy to say actually slave resistance was one of the ways in which god's displeasure at slavery has manifested itself through kind of kicking back against this illicit form of money making um, but it's not necessarily a system which always respects or reflects um, the political import of of slave resistance or indeed the um, yeah the nature of those um, resisting. Um, you can start to see, I think, in things like the 1823 Demerara Rebellion, which newspapers in Britain do actually note, looks a lot more like almost a trade union stoppage in that there's actually not violence against owners, but just demands for um, Sunday off to worship um, in church and for uh, more restricted working hours. So there is there is slow, I suppose, acknowledgement of the fact that there, this is actually um, a rational resistance. Um, but I think we should be cautious about putting abolitionists into some anti-racist teleology or, or that, that goes straight to um, a contemporary sort of anti-racist movement. So I think, for example, in the Liverpool Slavery Museum, they do a really good job of highlighting the ways in which abolitionism 
may have um, taken blows against the slave trade and slavery, but very few abolitionists graduated from that movement to being necessarily anti-imperialists or anti-racists. Were there other campaigns going on in other countries uh, against slavery or the slave trade? And presumably, presumably there were there were you know people movements, but were, were we in Britain? We like to be say we're the first to things, and we ended up being, if you like, the the policemen of the or tried to present ourselves as the policemen of the slave of slavery and the slave trade. Uh, our, uh, once we had banned it ourselves, having been central to it. But were, were, were there other similar campaigns? And, and you know, we, are we sometimes over-egging our role in, in, in all of this? Well, I suppose on the one hand, you have to remember, as we've touched on, that resistance from the enslaved themselves is an early uh, form of resisting slavery as a mm. system, as well as for the condition of an individual. Um, there are other first denmark uh, takes early um, steps against the slave trade um, and one of the one of the factors perhaps in britain banning the slave trade in 1807 is the knowledge that the united states constitution had time limited the slave trade and that in 1808 it would be uh, a ban on importing new slaves would be imposed in the united states so it's very much an international context to this um, you could actually argue that, in fact, the 1807 slave trade ban is really only becomes um, more politically attractive to government because it's at a point when, after the Battle of Trafalgar, the French slave trade has been de facto suppressed by the fact that France is blockaded by the Royal Navy. And therefore, the old argument that if we give it up, the French will just take over has a particular um, is particularly deadened at that moment. So there's definitely international context. I think the British movement, though, does end up having an impact on um, direct copycat movements, as it were, that in everywhere from Holland and France, and particularly later in the United States, there's a sense to which the particular formula of petitioning or perhaps using innovative visual um, communication to show things like the plan of a slave ship to bring home to people the realities of um, the shackles and the equipment involved, that sort of, some of those campaigning techniques that you could trace back to the British campaign do have important afterlives in other movements as well. Um, so uh, there is a precocity to British abolitionism. I would say that on the, con on, the, on the counter side of that, though, is the fact that British abolitionism is early and perhaps succeeds earlier than in other countries like you know, the United States, where slavery is there till the Civil War, um, is reflected in the fact that it enjoys a lot more elite support early on from evangelical MPs, from um, a religious um, middle class public. But that also means that British abolitionism probably develops fewer of the radical countercultural elements that you see in other countries. So in the US, the women's suffrage movement actually emerges out of women abolition, women abolitionists resisting the fact they weren't being stopped the opportunity to take a full part in campaigning. And of course, in the US as well, you can trace back the origins of African-American civil rights to those like Frederick Douglass, who didn't think that the abolition of slavery was the end of African-American equality struggles. You have a harder time doing a British genealogy, which develops... Um, women's suffrage back to abolitionism and things, because in a sense, I think they, they had more establishment support 
so in a sense they won earlier but also developed less of a kind of um, outsider countercultural um, uh, ethos within British abolitionism as a movement. Um, Richard, thank you so much for your time.